Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Let's get this show started. Go get your coffee or grab a drink and sit back and settle in. Today, joining me on the show is the ESPN bracketologist. He's a college basketball analyst also on ESPN. He's known as the godfather of brackets, has done color commentary for St. Joe's men's basketball for over 28 years. In 1995 and in 2004, he received the William J. Bennett Award for dedication and loyalty to the St. Joe's men's basketball program. A Philadelphia native, please welcome to the show, Joe Lenardi. Joe, how are you today? I'm great, Tommy. What a wonderful introduction. Those St. Joe's people must have really been hurting two years to give out that award. <laughs> not had anybody else available. <laughs> Speaking of St. Joe's, was that your college of choice? Let's just start there. Or, or is it always where you're going to go? You know, in retrospect, yes, clearly it was. My dad is a hawk. Uh, my two older brothers are are graduates. Uh, I met my wife at St. Joe's. Uh, our youngest daughter just graduated this past May. So, yeah, I guess uh, there's a bit of a Lenardi legacy there on Hawk Hill. And uh, even though for the three years right before college, I had a little life sabbatical. My dad's job took us from Philadelphia out to Southern California. And I actually went to high school uh, outside Los Angeles and applied to schools on the West Coast as well. Uh, I, I, I think it was pretty clear that he was, you know, going to take an early retirement and come home. Uh, my mom and dad had grandchildren from my older brothers at that point. Uh, I don't, you know, have any delusions that they wanted to, to be near them more than they wanted to live with me. Uh, and who could blame them really at that time? Uh, so being too chicken to stay by myself in California, <laughs> I moved back to Philadelphia with them. and. Uh, went to the school I grew up watching all along. And you've done a lot of things with them. Uh, you were director of media relations. You were assistant vice president of marketing communications. Upon graduation, did you just stay with St. Joe's? I know you were with Philadelphia Bulletin for a while, but explain how that whole process happened. Yeah, man. It, you know, I just turned, and, and this is a scoop for the Before the Lights podcast here. I just turned 60. So this is my first interview since, uh, happy birthday. Well, thank you. Um, uh, you know, um, I, I tell people that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm short for my age, but, uh, you can't tell that on a podcast, <laughs> you know? So, so right after college, I was a sports writer for a little while at a suburban daily outside Philadelphia called the Delaware County daily times. And then I went, back to work at St. Joe's in the admissions office, actually, okay. uh, you know, which is the kind of job they give to a nice guy graduate, you know, who's not really qualified to do anything else. Uh, did that for a while. Then I worked at Temple University for almost three years in human resources. And I actually thought that was going to be my career. Uh, all the while I was still doing freelance basketball as a print reporter in and around Philadelphia, because we're fortunate to have six division one teams that are within, you know, uh, an, an eight mile radius. 
So, you know, I got Big East and Villanova and Temple and St. Joe's at that time in the Atlantic 10 and so on. Uh, and, and I was able to kind of keep my, my foot in the door in basketball. Uh, and then when I went back to work at St. Joe's in 87, in what turned out to be, uh, you know, the marketing communications area, uh, it was a one man band. They had never had anyone in that media relations role prior on the university side, non-sports, um, and eventually build a whole department and division. And, 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 and by the time, uh, you know, we were both smart enough to see the writing on the wall and that it, it, it was time to get somebody younger, like, you know, who knew how to get on the internet. Uh, I did that for 30 plus years, uh, leaving as a VP all the while broadcasting the games on the side and uh, lo and behold, becoming a bracketologist, which no one could have planned or seen coming. Everyone still asks me, how did that happen? And what was the plan? And to say that there was or is a plan implies that I was smart enough to have a plan. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here to tell you there was no plan. It was just a basketball fan having fun. You, you've done over 1,100 St. Joe's men's basketball games. And my question is, has anyone seen more games live than you? Interestingly, uh, our longtime athletic director, Don DeGiulia, who also retired from that role a couple of years ago, in, insists that I have seen more St. Joe's games than anyone. I would uh, think so. When I saw that I number. really, I never really thought of it that way because we – you know, like most schools, we've got a core of, you know, diehards who home and away, you know, unless we're playing in Utah or something, they're, they're going to get to the game. And, you know, being in East Coast League, you can drive to a lot of away venues and tournaments and, and all of that. But I guess uh, because for maybe 25 of those 30 years, I was – full-time traveling with the team and, and and not missing any games except, you know, for, you know, the, the two times that my wife was in labor. Uh, and, and, you know, that was just bad timing on, on, on her part and she's not listening, uh, <laughs> but, 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 you know, Tommy, like, yeah. And, and, you know, the other contenders would be people like, you know, a 40 year athletic director, but like he had a real job and didn't travel to all the road games. And, and, you know, Phil Martelli was the coach for 24 years and then an assistant for 10. And he and I counted it up one time. And, and because of being a print reporter before he got to campus, you know, I, I still had him beat. Uh, it's so amazing. I, 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 I guess this is going to give me maybe a fewer years in purgatory. <laughs> Like being a Hawk fan is not like rooting for Duke or Carolina. Like if you're one of those schools, the sweet 16 is a bad year. Right. Uh, I, I, I have a lifetime winning percentage of about 575 as a Hawk reporter and broadcaster, which is probably more like covering a good baseball team than, 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 but it's my school. It's our family school and I'm a proud Hawk and, and even though uh, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer there as an employee, going back to do most of the games is still a hoot. And, uh, y y you know, ESPN's kind enough to indulge that 
uh, for most of the season. And then when it gets to be about championship week, you know, I know where my bread is buttered. You've been a longtime editor of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Yearbook. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with that, it's a postseason NCAA tournament guide that led to the creation of Bracketology in the mid-90s. The digital version, if I'm, if I'm correct, is still available on Selection Sundays on ESPN.com. Is that still there, Joe? Yeah, it's not under the Blue Ribbon umbrella. Uh, Blue Ribbon as a print preseason annual is still in existence. You know, 400 plus encyclopedic pages and coverage of every Division One team in the country. Chris Dorchu, who was, there have only been three editors of Blue Ribbon uh, in its 40-year history. Chris Wallace, who founded it and has now been a general manager in the NBA for probably pushing 20 years, if not more. Uh, I was his number two and took over uh, in the 90s. And then Chris Dorch out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, was my number two number of years. And now he's had it uh, for the last, it's got to be, like I said, pushing 20 years now. And uh, the, 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 the brainchild of a postseason edition was ours in the mid-90s, and it was – getting ready to produce that book on selection Sunday night that led me to start guessing, if you will, the field, right? We, I wasn't doing it to, to go on television or ESPN.com, which were in their infancies at that time, at least.com was. And uh, it, it, you know, it was one of those things where uh, the law of unintended consequences, I guess, took over because in order to help promote the book, we were able to convince ESPN.com to run the tournament projections that I was producing in January and February. Those projections were not being done for the reason that people click on them today. Right. They were being done. So then on selection Sunday night, when we had to print 80 pages, we didn't have any blanks and we didn't miss a team that needed to be in the book because you know, Lenardi, the editor, was too stupid to think about a second team from the Metro Atlantic and that Manhattan would get in and beat Oklahoma or whatever the case right. may, may be. And that year, the first year of the book, that actually happened. Manhattan got an at-large as a 13th as seed, beat Oklahoma on selection Sunday night at 10 o'clock. We didn't have a write-up on Manhattan because I was too stupid to put him in the field. <laughs> Uh, and Fran Fraschilla, who was the coach then, has never forgiven me for that. <laughs> uh, even though I bought him probably 300 Philly cheesesteaks in the last 30 years, uh, you'd think, you'd think. He'd be at least equal. Out of the doghouse. Right, right, right. Joe, when did you start? Was it the postseason of the Blue Ribbon or was it before then you started guessing who might be in a field? Uh, no, I started the, the, the formal educated guessing around 1995. So, okay. you know, we can say uh, for better or worse that we're, you know, 25 years into this in various formats and, and incarnations, uh, you know, again, starting as just plain old HTML text on a web page. And, you know, now there's a picture and click here for what Joe thinks and click here to get the metrics behind, you know, Mississippi State as a bubble team and 
the tournament odds and, 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 you know, again, all of these things that have come along for the ride that were never part of the initial intent and the postseason digital analysis that, that ESPN.com posts now on selection Sunday night is still done much as we did it at blue ribbon back in the late nineties and early two thousands. And, uh, you know, probably, you know, shouldn't necessarily be advertised because they slap my name on it. Uh, but I, I do very little of that writing now because I think most people know that selection Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, <laughs> I'm doing other things. Sure. Uh, so the way we've made up for that is, uh, just, just because God has a sense of humor, uh, I do a one minute video on all 68 teams in the field, uh, on Monday morning after the bracket comes out and after I've had, you know, three or four hours of sleep <laughs> and, and try to, you know, offer my own insight to the pairings and, and who's, who's, who's going to advance and, and who's not. And I'm, I'm happy to report that, um, I am reasonably good at that, but I concur. You wouldn't want to bet a mortgage payment on my picks every year. Because, <laughs> like all of us, probably you included, I'm just as capable of losing to the secretary at the end of the hall or, or you know, to, to somebody's crazy uncle Steve who wouldn't know zone from man to man who's right. thinking based on like the, the color of a team's mascot or the coaches deals or whatever. Uh, but isn't that what makes it great? Like if, if what was expected always happened, it wouldn't be the great sport event that it is. Agree. So Joe, how did the whole deal then with ESPN transpire with, and you coined the term bracketology and where did you come up with the term and how did the whole deal happen from getting it going and from where it is today? Yeah. that <laughs> Not to, you know, this isn't a sales pitch or anything, but we're, we're doing a book. We've never done a book. Uh, it'll be out after the Super Bowl and leading up to March Madness. Lord willing, provided that there is such a thing in 2021. Is that called on the bubble? It well, you know what? That was that was my working title. Okay. Uh, but the 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 publishers had other ideas, good ones, and it's simply going to be called bracketology. Uh, you know, kind of subtitled how, how an ordinary Joe created a national obsession. And in the book, it, 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 there's, there's reference to an interview I did with uh, a local sports writer back in the late 90s where he claims, and he's a friend, Mike Jensen, the Philadelphia Inquirer, he claims that I called myself a bracketologist when I was asked for my credentials. I don't remember that. Uh, but I'm a lot older than he is. So his memory's probably <laughs> better. I do know that bracketology came from bracketologist and all of the other, you know, behind the bracket and bracketville and bracket bubble and bracket bunker have just been spinoffs of that. And, um, here we are later. And, and who knew? So the ESPN then get, cause you guys were doing the HTML version with them. And they just started seeing that 
this was something we could grow and came to you and said, Hey Joe, you want to kind of do something a little bit on a bigger stand? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, it was a small thing, uh, at the network. It was a big thing on ESPN.com for, for quite a few years, but you had to be a pretty hardcore reader to find it. Uh, you know, it, 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 it wasn't like linked from the homepage or scrolling on the bottom of the screen while you were watching championship week and all that. Like it's almost obscene now, the amount of times that it gets referenced. You know, I remember our oldest was in college one year and, and, and this I'm sure is hypothetical. Um, she was, she was with, you, you know, friends and there were maybe red solo cups involved and it might've been a college event. And, you know, there's my name on the bottom of the screen and, you know, Hey, are you related to, and you know, that then somebody started saying that they changed my name to according to, because on the bottom <laughs> of the screen it just says, you know, according to Joe, according to, and I'm like, I, I, I don't really have that much to say. Um, but in, in 2002, it got its own page on ESPN.com at kind of that first week after college football bowl season was over in early January. Like when all of us kind of shift our focus over to college hoops mm-hmm. and it got promoted on all the ESPN platforms and, you know, say what you want about ESPN at Disney. We're pretty good at promoting things. And the king. It, 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 it got, you know, like whatever, a quarter of a million hits in an hour and a half. And we kind of looked at each other and went, eh, maybe there is something to this whole internet <laughs> thing. <laughs> and uh, that led ESPN news later that season to, to make me part of its kind of studio team of tournament coverage, you know, ESPN news at that time, like you needed probably three coat hangers and a tin can to get it. Uh, so, so they were, you know, probably just happy to have a live body who could spell NCAA <laughs> to, to sit, to sit in the studio and listen to these coaches press conferences, you know, after their, after their off day workouts and say, yeah, Duke's pretty good. Bob, that I was adding to the table at that point. Uh, and it, it was, I, I loved doing it. I, I never had any training really in broadcasting or TV other than radio for St. Joe's. Uh, and, and I guess the people who put me on ESPN news didn't get fired. And that then led, you know, every year, a little bit more, a little bit mm-hmm. more, a little bit more. And, you know, now there's a camera and a light and a little mini broadband hookup in my basement kind of looks like behind me here. And, uh, that about how many hits is it getting these days? I mean, quarter of a million back there in 2002, I got to guess it's 20, 25 million or more. Yeah. I I don't know the total number. And this year we never got to the end. So yeah, I, I think, I don't think ESPN is losing money on bracketology uh, and I'm not. So everybody's happy. And uh, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that this is still the toy department of life. And I pinch myself every day that, you know, now in semi-retirement, I don't have to go and get a real job. Uh, I can just do basketball. And it was something I always wanted to do. 
and 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 now to be able to kind of focus on that almost exclusively is is a blessing. And I tell people that whenever I stop getting excited about it, it'll be time for somebody else to do it because you shouldn't be jaded. You shouldn't be entitled. You shouldn't be, uh, what, what, what's the word you you shouldn't take it for granted. Uh, because you know, I have worked for a living Mm -hmm. and it's hard. Yeah. This is not that this is the toy department. (laughs) It's, it's hard work. And I'm not saying I don't work hard at it, but there's a difference between working hard and hard Hard working. Agree. And I, and I tell me like, like I wanted, I I never wanted to stop working when I retired from St. Joe's. I, I just wanted to stop going to work. And there's a big difference because now not now by not going to work, I spend a, a fair amount of time with with my golf clubs as well. And I've proven to be, well, I can't score 68 at golf. I'll just leave it. <laughs> All right. We'll get into golf a little bit later. Before I ask Joe the next question, make sure you visit my website before the and go to the bottom of the page. Click on the Vegas.com banners to get the best deals in Las Vegas for shows, hotels, and vacation packages. Go to BeforeTheLightsPod.com and go to the bottom of the page and click on the Vegas.com banner. Joe, what is the art slash science behind trying to find out what, I mean, for our listeners, there's 32 auto, auto teams and the rest are at large, and that number could vary depending on how many are in the field. But what's the art and science of trying to find out what those at-large teams are going to be? Well, I think the the science part is is easier to answer. Okay, right. Uh, the NCAA, well, from 1981 until two years ago, had uh, not not an exclusive metric, but one that was kind of the center of the evaluation process, called the RPI, which stood for Ratings Percentage Index. I don't know what those words really are supposed to mean, but it was just the RPI. And then a couple of years ago, because they're really good at naming things, they came up with something called net, mm-hmm. which is short for NCAA evaluation tool. I think they were up all night thinking of that. <laughs> uh, it, it, I, I believe it is a better metric than the RPI uh, from a qualitative standpoint. Uh the irony is we only really got to see the results of one selection season with it because we never got to the finish line last year. Now I and a hundred other people, probably more than a hundred who are, who are doing this whole bracket thing publicly. uh, You know, we think we had an idea of where the field was headed in March of 2020, but we're never going to know because they never stayed in the room long enough to make the seed list because once it was canceled, they had to get back to their jobs and their campuses and their office and, you know, try and consult people and put out fires because sure we all remember what those days were like. Yep. And, you know, as we said before, hoping that we don't have to go through them again. Uh, I suspect if, if, if there is our mass cancellations, to the college basketball postseason, at least we'll know them a little sooner. You know, it's not going to happen 48 hours before the tournament. Right. I agree. Be revealed. But the, the science part, 
is net and all the other rating systems that committee members can choose to have at their disposal. Okay. Uh, the art is trying to get inside the heads of 10 people and determine how much or which of the scientific measures they're going to value, right? I might value schedule strength. You might value record away from home. And a third person might value the fact that that team plays zone and they're really hard to run offense against, right? None of those criteria are wrong. None of those criteria are exclusive. And none of them, along with a bundle of others, are known in advance because I'm pretty sure we don't get to do CAT scans of the brains of the 10 people (laughs) for, during, or after the selection and seating process. So it it is a bit of a moving target. Uh, a lot of people, you know, don't like that and, and stand up against that. I guess my view is spending a lot of time complaining about, you know, the inconsistencies of the process when there are human beings involved is just kind of a waste of energy, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if you and I and eight other people got in a room and tried to pick the kind of beer we want this weekend, we might get 10 different opinions. None of them are wrong. We're all kind of joined by our love of beer, let's say. Right. I I believe that the 10 people in the room are joined by their love of college basketball, and they want to do the right thing. I think some have a better background than others for the job, but I mean – like, like this isn't a brain transplant. Like I could get you or your friends and, and I could kind of teach the basics and you'd get most of the teams because it ultimately comes down to beating other good teams and, and those things you can count. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if, if, if there's something that I bring to it that maybe others don't, it's just having done it longer and having seen more and having relationships with, you know, maybe prior committee members who've shed light on things to me over the years, but it's always too late to help me in that year. (laughs) And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's like a sequestered jury. I'm not supposed to know who's guilty or innocent. I want to know. And that Um, brings me to something that I want my listeners to understand. You don't have any communication with the committee while this is going on, or do you? No, well, look, they're not allowed to reach out. Now, look, we all have cell phones now, okay? (laughs) This is an honor system, if you will. I I think last year, I'm counting in my head, there were probably five or six people in the room whose cell phones I have the number for, for one reason or another, either staff or committee members, wouldn't conceive of sending a text. And I know darn well, I'm never receiving one. And, you know, at the end of the day, like theoretically, we're in a bit of an adversarial position, right? Like, like, Mm -hmm. like I'm the media, I'm the 
I'm the paper of record, if you will, in chronicling the selection and seating process. Not not because I'm I'm the best necessarily, but because I was first, and at the moment I have the platform on the network that's most affiliated with the sport. Right? That that could change. Uh, hopefully after I'm done, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I need to keep my distance. I, I, and I see why, I mean, it just makes perfect sense. I feel the same way about schools and coaches and, you know, during the season, like I root for teams, I have favorite players, but like once we get to the last week or two, like, and I, I kind of lock it down. Like I, I really don't listen or watch what the other people are saying because I've made the mistake of listening in the past and not that they're wrong and I'm right. It just kind of disturbs my process. Like my process works. I try and tweak it from year to year based upon what I think the committee members are valuing. Okay. And that's Mm -hmm. an educated guess based on precedent, just like a lawyer will look up old cases and old juries to try and get a handle on this new case. Right. And, and I, you know, maybe it's arrogance, maybe it's ego, maybe it's smart. I I just think just leave me alone. Let me do my thing and it'll all come out fine. And you know what, twice in however many 25 plus years uh, I've missed more than two teams about a team and a quarter to a team and a half a year. You're usually on it. Like I'm, 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 I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Yes. And which brings me to this and you kind of briefly hinted on it. How much do teams or coaches start getting in your ears? It gets closer going, Joe, am I in or am I out? Am I the last four in last four out? Am I on the bubble? What do I got to do to get in? They start coming to you realizing going, all right, Joe's only going to miss one. I got to find out where I'm at. They absolutely do. Uh, and you, y- you know, if you, if, if you can be a Dr. Phil in college basketball, that would kind of be me. And I realize ag- again, that the best way to go about this whole thing is to kind of check your ego and your biases at the door. Because if you don't, you're just setting yourself up to be disappointed. Uh, and I wouldn't do the job as well. So, but, but, but I realize they're calling because these guys are nervous. In many cases, their livelihood depends upon it. Mm-hmm. And they can't call the committee. They, 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 I mean, they can, I guess, but they're not going to get. So you're the next in line. The committee person might say. Yeah, we're going to we're going to take a look at your whole record. Well, okay. You could said, you know, in the election that just said, well, we're going to take a look at the candidate's whole record. Well, that doesn't tell me who you're voting for. Right. Right. I will tell them who I'm voting for. I think more more accurately, because my job is really about projecting what the committee is going to do more than giving my own opinion. Uh, And. I, I, I will tell a coach 
you know, like not naming names, but I once got a call or to call me in the next 10 minutes. It's urgent. And this is a coach I was pretty friendly with from outside the area. And I thought, Oh, I, 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 you know, I knew there were some health issues. I thought, Oh my God, somebody died. Right. And coach gets on the phone and he says, I need, I need, we have practice in 10 minutes. I need what I need to know what to tell the guys. (laughs) What do you mean? He said, well, what do we need to do to get in? And I said, coach, you're 11 and 14. You're not getting in. There isn't anything I can tell you. And I can't help you guard the ball screen. So thanks for calling, but there's really nothing I can do. (laughs) Not at 11 and 14. You know, if we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. And like, yeah. And if I land a plane on the sun, I'll be famous, but that's not possible. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, go in your conference tournament because that's all you got left. Do coaches understand that Joe Lenardi is not in the committee room and doesn't get to pick who gets in the tournament? You're just making projections. Yeah, most of them do. Okay. Most of them do. I wonder if they get kind of got blurried sometimes going, maybe if I get to Joe, he can get to the committee. You know, again, they can't yell at the committee either. So, you know, look, you got to have a little bit of a thicker skin to do this. And I tell myself, all right, we start the season with 357 teams. There are 68 spots. So unless my math is off, that means that at any moment in time, like 282 fan bases are going to hate me. And that's okay. Because fan is short for fanatic. And if it wasn't for that passion and interest, I'd have to get a real job. And employers everywhere don't want that. Believe me. I get it. They've had enough of me. What's your outlook of what our 2021 season may look like? Or, I mean, we're all guessing, but do you have an idea what it may look like? No better than anyone else, Tommy. I mean, uh, you know, I'm certainly concerned about uh, (laughs) the the rising case count everywhere, it seems. Uh, You know, I'm on the East Coast and and it, 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 it was a pretty good summer here for, you know, semi-normal activities. Uh, but, but I just read today, Pennsylvania's up 70% in the last whatever. And, you know, I get it. I, I think this, this plan to, to play as many games as possible between the time regular students go home for Thanksgiving and whenever they come back in January, uh, I think I read what 76 or 86% of division one campuses are going to be empty for that period. Uh, I mean, you know, it makes sense to try and take advantage of that. If we were to get back in January and have a two or three or four week shutdown uh, because of, you know, every, you know, kids going home for six weeks and then coming back to campuses and then kind of re re uh, gaining contact with, with others from all parts of the country on these campuses. And, you know, it's not my ology. Epidemiology is not my ology, but I can't imagine that that's a good thing 
So, you know, if we had made madness, it wouldn't surprise me. If we have a smaller tournament in March, it wouldn't surprise me. If we had to change the composition and or format of the tournament to accommodate whatever the state of play is in early March, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I'm also, with all that, I'm encouraged by what we've seen in most other sports. Uh, you, you know, even even though college football is coming off a weekend where, what, I think nine or ten games were not played, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it it's certainly easy to get fixated on a number like that, um, that, that means the vast majority of games are being played. And, you know, you, you would think that blocking and tackling and piles of kids who are on college campuses that this, again, not my ology. Agree. And if people think it's unsafe, they should do what feels safe. I thought it would be way worse. I did too with football. Because of that, um, now I understand Football's outside, basketball's inside. But football's 85 people, basketball's 13. The NBA managed to do okay. Now they spent, you know, they have more money than God. Sure. And they spent it, right? So, you know, I guess what concerns me the most, drilling down to specifics, is this whole idea that if there's a positive test within your team, that your team is shut down for two weeks. And that doesn't seem to be consistent with how other sports have approached it. You know, I, that maybe we're at a point where we can isolate and or quarantine an individual, but again, that's up to the doctors and up to the experts. And if, if what the world needs is for there to be no college basketball in the macro sense or in the micro sense that none of us may watch a single game in person you know, that I may be doing this whole bracket thing in front of a fake background until April, you know, that would stink, but it's, I I can't speak for other people. I'm more than willing to pay that price for the health and safety of everybody else, because this drib and drab thing is, you know, not to get political. It's not getting us anywhere. Yeah, I agree. To, To do something different because we know what the definition of insanity is. Yes. I would not be surprised to see the tournament all end up in one city under bubbles where, you know, there's multiple locations where they could put something, whether it's mm-hmm. Indianapolis or Las Vegas that has different, you know, venues where you could put different regions in one venue and there's enough hotel rooms to, to keep, I could see something like that happening depending on how cases go. Um, is there a tip or a trick you could tell our listeners to them when you're filling out their own bracket you know, I always try and tell people that, you know, pay attention to the 7, 10, 6, 11, 5, 12 games. But is there some tips you can give them? There are, of course, you know, then we'd have to have them killed. <laughs> we wouldn't want to give away any state secrets or the nuclear codes. Look, my thing is, how do you play away from home? Right? Like, Rutgers last year. Correct. And I have a lot of friends at Rutgers. You know, it's the next state over rooting for Rutgers to the extent that I can root. But, you know, I remember CM Newton who was on the committee for about a hundred years 
athletic director at Kentucky, coach at Vandy, et cetera, et cetera. And he would say, they all don't play in the home games in the tournament, which I think translated was there are no home games in the NCAAs. And, you know, if, if all your good wins are at home, I'm not saying you can't win a big neutral game. It just means you haven't yet. Right. And I look for that. Uh, having, having said that, I have quite publicly lost brackets uh, to a Cocker Spaniel, uh, to my old secretary, to my infant children. <laughs> so it's a guess. It, it's, it's, I mean, I'd like to think it's a more educated guess than most, because if there are people spending more time at this than I am, they really, really, really need to seek some medical attention. (laughs) But all all that proves is like, just because something's 98% likely to happen, doesn't mean it's going to happen. That's this is true. I think I think the Latin for that is UMBC. Yeah, I was just going to say, Virginia can talk about that and talk Absolutely. about it. I was shocked when that well, happened. So were they? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how do you think they felt the next year? Oh, uh, who who were they playing in the first? They were down like twelve, like right out of the gate. Right. I forget who it was too, but. I thought, oh, no, we're not going to see this back-to-back years, are we? It's like it's human nature, right? Like, the sky is falling. It fell on me once. You know, here here it comes again. Is there a team that our college basketball fans should be paying attention to that may not be one of the, the Blue Bloods or the Power Conference teams that might come up and be like this year's Dayton? Uh, well, just... <laughs> Being this year's Dayton is a pretty tall order because that was kind of a generational team. Uh, St. Louis and Richmond out of the Atlantic 10 are are both good enough to play into the second weekend, you know, if they're hot and in the right matchups. I think I would say the same thing about Loyola Chicago and Northern Illinois in the Missouri Valley Conference. Um, Maybe... Maybe San Diego State, uh, but without Malachi Flynn, that's going to be difficult. If I had to pick a team from a non-power conference that I thought would go the furthest this year, I think I would take BYU. Mm. They were really coming on last year. They were. Really coming on last year. They lost a key player in Childs. But they have transfers. I think Mark Pope is ticketed for, for big things as their coach. Uh, and I, I like the way they play. Uh, they're on, like, they were the only team that dismantled Gonzaga last year. Yes. Now, admittedly, it was a home game, you know, Saturday night, nuts crowd, the whole thing. But, you know, Gonzaga is the big game Saturday night nuts crowd for almost everybody on their schedule. My my picks Boise State. Okay, they got a couple transfers sitting up there. That do. and I don't think people's paying any attention to Leon Rice up there. I live here in Vegas, and I think they're dangerous. He's 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 had teams in the past. Uh, the league doesn't help them though anymore. No, and and you know again, San Diego State was going to be a one or a two last year. But that's not the way the Mountain West has been trending. You know, the Mountain West of 10 or 12 years ago with Jimmer and Kawhi 
et cetera, hasn't been. And it's been a one bid league on, you know, too many occasions for their liking. And a lot of that's because of, of the decline of programs like where you're sitting, mm-hmm. right. UNLV and, you know, it was a perennial and New Mexico is always in the tournament. And now, you know, everybody seems to go in and win at the pit. Like it's just not the same BYU is not even in the league. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, they, they're in a situation, unfortunately, of having to prove it, I think, before a wide amount of people buy in. Today's show is being brought to you by Reflection Bay Golf Club, located in the heart of beautiful Lake Las Vegas. Go to reflectionbaygolf.com. That's reflectionbaygolf.com. It's a top 100 course that the public can play. It's a Jack Nicholas signature prestige design that played host to the Wendy's Three Tour Challenge from 1998 to 2007. And Joe, if you ever get back out here to Las Vegas, make sure you let me know. I got a round of golf waiting for you and me out at the golf course on me. Do they take... Uh... 16 handicaps? Yes, they do. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Well, my index is 13. I'm 16 at my club. It's a beautiful golf course. It, so I, you're, at this club, I'd probably be about a 26. That's all right. We'll just have fun. We'll go out there and knock it around and have some fun. Yeah, but the ball flies out there. It does. And it I, does. I'm, okay. I'm, yeah. I'll warn you, I'm sneaky long. That's okay. <laughs> we'll have fun. <laughs> we'll just I'm go out I'm also sneaky, not straight. (laughs) Well, you want to be in the fairway on this golf course or you'll pay the penalty. (laughs) All right. I got some time to work on it. That's right. Joe, I wanted to say thanks so much for taking time out of your day and being on my show. I really appreciate you doing this. My pleasure. Good luck. For show notes, go to our website, beforethelightspod.com. Follow us on Instagram at beforethelightspodcast. If you're looking for new merchandise, you can go to beforethelightspod slash merch and check out all the new brand new apparel there. We even have coffee mugs and a brand new drawstring bag for you. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. Until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.